Hello and welcome to We're Not Selling Shoes Here, the only podcast for small charities that focuses not just on why we're driven to do what we do, but also practical ways that we can start to make noise and get more attention for us and our cause. I'm Benjamin, I'm your host, and today I'm joined by Adrian Ashton. It's a pleasure to have Hello. you here, Adrian. Adrian calls Thanks, himself Adrian calls himself the person that program managers call in when it needs sorting, when something needs sorting, it's getting messy. There's buckets of uncertainty, and um, he wouldn't necessarily call himself a consultant or a coach, though that's part of what he does. But it sounds like, Adrian, what you do is very practical and hands-on for grassroots organisations, social enterprises. You've worked with the Cooperative Enterprise Hub, Unlimited, the School for Social Entrepreneurs. The list goes on. Yes. Thank you, Ben. Um, yeah, like I said, a lot of what I do is kind of cleaning up but not in a kind of, you know, hitman way where I kind of take care of <laughs> your competition, but rather, you know, people getting to charities because we're motivated to try and help other people, to try and make the world a better place, to make our neighbourhoods, our streets more comfortable and enjoyable for us, or sometimes to actually, as part of our rehabilitation of working through trauma, through lived experience. And that means that in the rush to try and do the good stuff, we are sometimes caught up with that. We forget to pause and say, hang on a minute, what does the law say about this? What's the planning permission I might need? Because I'm just doing good stuff. And this is most. This is more important. Doing good stuff is more important than, than filling out all the forms or making sure I've got folders of policies and this, that, and the other. And to a point, I absolutely agree. The difficulty is the world has rules. The rules are there for a reason. Sometimes they go too far. But if we're not aware of them, if we don't take time every so often just to make sure we've got all the boxes ticked, then it can all blow up in our faces. And that's usually, well, not usually, but sometimes where I get asked to parachute in and say, something's kicking off. It was never malicious or intentional. How do we tidy it up, clean it up so this good stuff can keep going? And sometimes if we can't rescue it, if we can't put the sticky plasters on and quote unquote discover all the documents that were behind the back of the filing cabinet that we forgot had fallen down there after three nights of searching how can we try and make sure there is positive legacy so the charity has to be wound up but that doesn't have to be a traumatic bad event there can still be good stuff that comes out of that ending because all things end things have to end so other things can begin things end that's sad and things begin again and that's new and happy and exciting so it's helping people have that confidence to, to say, that's okay. Just because something's ended doesn't mean I failed. There's no shame in that. And uh, at the beginning there, you really started off with uh, essentially what I wanted to get you in to talk about, which is this idea that, you know, we're in this for doing something good. We're, we're all in this support of nonprofits or active in nonprofits to try and make some good in the world. But of course, we do have that choice um, that we could just be out there selling shoes. And obviously, you know, you've uh, won several awards. You've got a lot of um, kudos among um, quite big organisations. 
you could just be out there commanding quite a high fee working for probably Coca-Cola, or you were just talking about working for eBay to me before we came on the call. So why are you supporting nonprofits and not just out there selling shoes? What is it for you? Okay. Well, part of it, uh, Ben, is I have awkward feet. I have drop touches, ingrown toenails. So trying to find regular shoes, that will suit me. Ask my podiatrist. It's awful. Anyway, anyway, Angela, if you're listening, hello, she's my podiatrist. I haven't seen her for about three years now, but everything's still working. Nothing's getting infected. It's all fine. Meanwhile, uh, back to your question and the point of why we're supposed to be on this podcast and dear listeners, why you've actually tuned in. Actually, I, I play both sides of the fence, but for different reasons. I would always argue to people that if we want to create impact at scale, we have to be talking with Coca-Cola and McDonald's. For example, in terms of the, the, the business practices, the supply chain practices, the operational management stuff that McDonald's UK has in place is absolutely staggeringly phenomenal for the impact and good that that creates in local communities on the natural environment for families and all the rest. They just don't talk about it, but there's a core business reason for it. Coca-Cola have a global distribution network. If you are a sort of health charity, you're trying to get medicines to the last mile, partner with Coca-Cola. They can get a bottle of Coke anywhere on the planet and they've always got gaps between the bottles on the racks. I was just reading actually that during the Second World War, one of the reasons that Coca-Cola has such a huge global reach is that during the Second World War, they made a point of, with the US government, creating bottling banks at the fronts, at the actual mm. front where the fighting was happening, so that American soldiers would have a bottle of Coca-Cola in their hands, whether they were in Africa or you know the fields in, 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 uh, in Europe. And now, like you say, that, that's kind of given them that, that reach. They, they understand it. They have that institutional knowledge of going out beyond their own organization uh, barriers if you like so so that's part of the kind of the the private corporate big bad business um you know don't discount them just because they're private business there's actually a lot of resource and infrastructure and capacity to ramp up impacts and scale it out however however my interest in doing stuff with charities and social enterprises and cooperatives is they are the wild west frontier of the world this is where the interesting stuff is happening this is where i hate to use the i word innovation, um, horrendously overused, uh, is happening. This is where people are bootstrapping all the time, where new challenges are being experienced and they're being responded to quickly and cleverly. Big business can't do that. They're too bureaucratic. The, the, the behemoth's too great. They have too much infrastructure and bureaucracy. So charities are where the exciting stuff's at. I'm not suggesting that, you know, every so often we go out into charity land and it gets to lunchtime when we all line up on the street and pull out six shooters and try and pop a cap in each other. But it's where there's an awful lot of exciting stuff happening if we're just open to seeing it and encouraging it. So and it's always been that way. We look back through history, for example. Uh, it's not that long ago. So we go back about 100, 120 years here in, in England, in the UK. Charities were delivering education and healthcare before they was they were universally given so charities were setting up schools charities were running community hospitals and drop-ins and it was only about 100 years ago that the government said we think education should be a universal right 
because we've seen how important it is because charities have been modeling it and profiling it. And the same with the introduction of the NHS, which finally managed after several attempts to get through onto the statute books. So that's kind of really where the excitement's at. And particularly, you know, the smaller charities, you guys are and folk are, are where lots of exciting magic dust is happening. I guess you could draw a line. You can draw a line there as well. We're talking about Coca-Cola. And then you had the mill owners who were responsible for setting up a lot of the um, the kind of primary school care um, yeah. and then little communities. I mean, I know, you know, and again, this is where it does flip-flop, doesn't it? Because obviously there was a level to which the mill owners created the school system that supported their workers so that purposely their workers that could then work. I mean, it wasn't like necessarily just for the betterment, but there were a lot of um, of kind of philanthropic, I guess, yeah. industrial figures at that time that were also setting them up because they knew that education was important and they were sort of complementing, you know, their um, uh, their community that they had around them and creating those villages, which now, you know, do exist as as kind of communities, even though they're not as maybe as bounded. And you know, there's yeah, for any business to be doing something good and shiny and fluffy and warm and fuzzy, there has to be a business case. You know, McDonald's earlier, for example, their commitment to ethical standards in their supply chain meant that they were the only high street food retailer that was not caught up in the horse meat scandal a few years ago. Yeah, okay, but they never made a song and dance about that. They simply said, This is good business sense for us. The same for the mill owners as well. But by modeling that, by standing up and saying, we can do this, other people are inspired, other people talk about it, and that ripples out. So businesses uh, recognize kind of charity, being charitable has benefits for them, just as, and as you're exploring through this podcast series, Ben, charities need to look to businesses and say, there are benefits, we can be more charitable, we can amplify the good if we maybe go over to the dark side a little bit and being not maybe be inspired but you know Im- mimic and imitate some of their own approaches and practices but we redeem them for good mm, i guess it's looking isn't it at, at the um the impact that you have based on on you're trying to go out and, tr- and change something you know trying to go out and do something good in the world and that's kind of your impact impact like you said in your mind but often um it's kind of not to not to judge but it can be a bit woolly it can be a bit distinct indistinct sorry and you don't necessarily come back with, um, you know, <laughs> you talk about the dark side, that kind of KPI approach of saying, okay, we want to have impact on homelessness. What does that actually look like? And where I think is interesting at the moment is, especially with social enterprises, meeting in the middle of a need to judge and measure and ensure that resources are being spent effectively. But at the same time, to have that social capital built up, that social purpose built up. I know that there's um, a lot of discussion at the moment about purpose and, uh, you know, whether it's, it's really just nonsense for, for businesses. But I guess this is why, for me, where the, the, the podcast comes from, this idea that you have purpose, whatever you do. You know, so you were talking at the beginning about having bad feet. You know, I've got flat feet. I've got these inserts. I've got, I need a level of um, delivery of those kind of pieces of equipment in order to get out and have a, you know, have an ideal life. I think I've said before, it, you know, it's, it's hard to march in bare feet. So having shoes, selling shoes is, is important. It's just about, you know, you sell shoes in order to give people the best shoe experience, right? Yeah. But that we maybe some of us need a bit more than that product experience, a bit more than that delivery. It's not quite enough. 
And um, I'm interested, you were talking about innovation, obviously necessity, the mother of invention, that bleeding edge kind of wild west environment you paint that charities are in, essentially because they have no money. They have no mm. ability to just throw money at things. Is it, is it a case of you enjoying the innovation that has a kind of positive good at the heart of it? Or, or is it potentially that, um, this is where I think I kind of joined in, where my kind of um, passion lies, is that actually it's not just the invention, it's the idea of almost being MacGyver <laughs> and of bootstrapping yeah. something. That's the exciting part. And the fact that you're doing it as well with a purpose gives you more clarity on what you're trying to achieve through that invention. Oh, Ben, you have no idea how much that cultural reference makes me smile and happy. MacGyver. Oh, that takes us back. So uh, well, I'm going to go off and, dear listener, I'm going off on a tangent for a few moments now. So if you're going to fast forward through, that's fine. But please stay with it. MacGyver was an iconic TV series. The last series kind of faltered a bit, but we did get to find out what his name is. Okay, those of us in really the know. What was his know name? What, Are you going to let it go? Oh, no, no, I can't let it go. You're going to watch it. <laughs> oh, I tell you what. I tell you what I'll do. I'm making off on this podcast now. If any listener wants to know what MacGyver's first or their Christian name is, their given name, because it's only revealed once in the show, then get in touch with me. Okay, that's, that's your homework and your initiative test. Look me up on social media, find an email, find a phone number, ring up and say, I listened to the podcast you did with Ben. You said you tell me what MacGyver's name is, and I will tell you. That's <laughs> I'll be first my, in the line. My, my, my wife and I kind of worked through the box set series of them when we first got together and so much fun. Into, and, and as a result, she now calls me her MacGyver. So, you know, I have a, a bag of uh, cable ties, paper clips, duct tape. You know, if you can't fix it with duct tape and a paper clip, he is not. I once fixed a computer with a paper clip, actually. Um, brought it back to life with a paper clip and a rubber band, which was quite impressive. Anyway. I do remember getting into home after being locked out um, with a broom handle through a cat mm -hmm. flap. But I think that was a fairly common thing in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. It's all manner of things. Toilet windows were the ones that you normally got into um, if you're locked out of your house. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so why am I in that space? I think it's because it speaks to the creativity in all of us. As whatever, you know, you kind of, if, you, if you're subscribed to the belief of evolution, if you subscribe to the belief of uh, divine creation in the, seven, the literal seven days, Either way, we can all agree that actually there is something in us that yearns to be creative, expressive, to be more than we are, not just to put up with going through the same emotions. That, that development, that newness, that construction excites us. It gives us a kick in all sorts of different ways. And maybe I'm a junkie. This is it. I've, you know, Having spent so many decades in co-ops and charities and others, I've become addicted to it. So this is now, this podcast listens, this has now become an intervention on Ben's part to try and help me break my habit. Um, no, absolutely. I'm not going to let you break your habit. I'm Because I'm you're basically my gateway drug then, because this is what I'm on the immediate oh, okay. stages of. I'm on the on-ramp, because um, it was last year that um, I really kind of doubled down and thought I'm going to really more move into the non-profit space. Um, I was at an event for a charity called Alex's Wish that we'd done some... Mm -hmm. um, uh, basically some in-kind work, just, you know, free work to support them with, with some development of messaging and brand and all this kind of stuff. And um, I went to an event where they were kind of unveiling the work that had been done. And in actual fact, a lot of the work that had been done had been done after we'd helped them because the help that, um, that had been given had, had just provided a platform and then they could leap on and, and go off and do stuff. 
And the event was so inspiring. It, it, such an awful word. I mean, you talked about innovation, but inspiring is another word that gets overused. But literally, I sat there almost in tears, just thinking, I've helped this. You know, I've been involved in, in this energy that has been created here. And who wouldn't want to feel that on a regular basis? And yeah, so and, that's it. And there's a, like a selfishness part of this, that I think, as well, Bing, which is when exactly. we get, however many years we have, whenever we get to the end of it and we have the chance to, in our twilight era, kind of reflect back, I don't want to reflect back and say, despite my potential, despite all my apparent giftings or skills or competencies, whatever they are, I actually kicked ass with them. There was actually good stuff happened um, as a result. And I'm proud to, to stand by that in terms of what I, what I achieved. And there's something else I think in my work that, that I, an approach I take a lot of the time, which is I don't try and get my name attached to it, which sounds odd in terms of, but you're a consultant. How do you know people get... It, there's a weird kind of paradoxical quantum philosophy, science-y thing going on. That's maybe another podcast series. Oh, no, no. Well, definitely we can get into a little bit of that. I think I lean that way as well, right, which is not to go too kind of into the, you know, the secret and all that kind of, you know, manifest, all that kind of stuff. I, I don't like that, not because I would sort of fight somebody who believes it, but because for me that's a lot of that is taking away agency. And for me, agency is all we have. Um, decision making you know how we how we kind of manage the world I'm just reading a book at the moment by a guy called uh, Dr Nate Zisner who's from West Point in America and um, it's called The Confident Mind and it's essentially about mental models how you approach um, life and he says at one point what I really liked um, which is that most people think of confidence as something that you feel when things are going well and that's not the case yes. confidence is the thing that keeps you going through the times that aren't going so well because you focus on you know what what does go well what you have achieved and, and confidence is what gets you through those difficult times and i think for me that is also why maybe i'm leaning into working with charities especially small charities where you can get very much connected to people it's very personal you're on a very personal level is that any time that you wake up and think why the hell am i here why shouldn't i just roll over and go back to sleep I mean, apart from getting the kids to school, but um, because you have that personal connection, right? You have that draw and you, and that doesn't just necessarily come with a, with an obligation that I have to do this for this person, but that if I do this, it's going to make me feel brilliant. And I feel brilliant about getting well, there's, And there's two other elements to that, that I, I kind of only half, I say, I, I always used to say to people, you know, half joking, half glibly, but actually there's a lot of truth in it. And one is when I became a consultant, self-employed type nearly 18 years ago, I never, by the way, I never meant to be sole trader, freelance, whatever I, I, you people want to call me. Never part of the plan. Um, happened by accident and necessity because I needed to support my family. And that's been my overriding focus in all the work I do to support my family. But I interpret that in my head as not just being earning enough money to pay the rent and keep the food in the fridge. It's also about supporting them to say, to try and contribute to the world becoming slightly nicer than it was when I was growing up in it, so for their benefit, and then also to support them in terms of saying, acting as a role model of sorts, or trying to model behaviours that say, I think people, if people, more people acted like this, the world would be a better place for all of us. So trying to create that, that legacy moment that way. That's one part. The other part, um, just to name check someone else again, is Eddie Reader. 
Um, now, for those of you who aren't aware, Eddie Reed is a folk singer. For those of you of a certain generation, like Ben and I are, we'll know Eddie best for fronting the band Fairground Attraction uh, back in the day. But anyway, Eddie wrote a song once um, called What You Do With What You've Got. And there is a line or a couple of lines in it which go, and I won't try and sing it because her voice is far better than mine. And I'm a bit tone deaf. Anyway, the words go, what's the use of two strong legs if you only run away? What's the use of strength and muscle if you only push and shove? And what's the use of two good years if you can't hear those you love? Which I have, when I was very young and impressionable when I heard that, um, and it's sung with a strong Gaelic accent, so really kind of evocative. And it's always haunted me to say, if I have these abilities, if I have these resources and I don't use them, what kind of, uh, hang on a minute, I need to get my, 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 my we, we talked earlier, dear listeners, um, about trying not to swear on this, but what kind of does that make me if I don't do as much as I can do? Because, you know, there's another line, which is, you know, uh, those who run to glory and those who cannot run, which ones are the quitters and which ones touch the sun? We're all different in this world. We all come into this world physically different from each other, differently abled to each other. That doesn't make us any more or less important. And somebody once said, you know, we all wipe our bum in the same way. You know, having, having, a, having a poop is a great leveler between all of us, wherever we think of each other. So actually, let's just try and be as human as we can to each other. And charities are, or should be, and usually are, the best way that we typify that humanness between us all. I was looking at your, um, your background, actually, and looking at kind of where you came from to get a sense of how you worked into this um, world that you're now in. And I noticed your degree was in, uh, well, a number of things, but one of them was the economics of social problems, which immediately struck me as that this was something that was on your mind, you know, way before you thought yeah. about career, way before. So was there a moment in your life where you thought, you know, I've got to do something that's a bit bigger than me. I've got to kind of reach for something that's a bit bigger than just, um, you know, a house and a car and, and all that kind of jazz. Well, I don't own a house. I used to, but I don't now. <laughs> I don't own a car. I used to, but I don't now. But those, again, are other kind of tiny violin stories for other times. I, yeah, the, the, the degree stuff, if you kind of dig into me, um, you'll see that I ended up reading uh, business at a university in Cambridge for five years, purely by accident, because I couldn't get in anywhere else. And that was the only thing I was offered in clearing. And I was also fortunate, again, I'm of an age and a generation where I could afford to go to university without getting into debt, but I'd still be paying off in, into my retirement years. So I was always very grateful for that and took the opportunity to say, let's explore this let's kind of really make the most the, the thing that you won't find out is what my what uh, level of degree i got it's an honest degree absolutely but it's a desmond of a degree and again generational reference for those of you who aren't aware uh, that refers to desmond tutu uh, the late great desmond tutu who passed a little while ago because actually i spent most of my time not in the business school I spent most of my time hanging out with art students and humanity students and people studying science and people on the sports teams and the volleyball clubs and, and all the rest, because that was interesting to me. All of these different perspectives, this, I recognised that that opportunity 
opportunity I would not get again. And I wanted to absolutely get the most of it. And that, again, kind of tracking back to think, you know, where was that coming from all the time? I kind of track that back and say part of it was at school. So another name check as well is Mr. Lang. Mr. Lang of Netherhall School. This is your moment to feel proud again. Um, he's now actually a lecturer in one of my old colleges, Anglia Ruskin. Um, really great Twitter feed, by the way, you can look him up, it's brilliant. But he really got me excited about history. So most of us think history at school, oh, pretty dull, pretty boy. He gave me a lifelong passion for history because one of his first lessons with us as a group of kids in school was to reenact the Battle of Troy by himself in front of us in full throttle mode to the point where other teachers came running down the corridor thinking we were walking, we were sat there gripping onto our chairs, absolutely bricking it because of how this teacher was jumping on the desks, you know, shouting, screaming, waving their arms about. And to that impressionable age, I just thought there must be something in this. If this gets someone so excited. So that gave me a passion for history. You know, other subjects, maybe not quite so exciting because the teachers didn't quite get me as riled up. But again, what triggered that? And again, you reflect back and say, actually, when I was growing up, tiny violin stuff, um, you know, my, my parents had a, you know, had a house on a council estate. Oh, there's no shame in that. Um, if you don't know what a council estate is, they used to be quite a big thing in the 60s and 70s. And then there was government policy change in the 80s and they all kind of disappeared. But, you know, I can remember on, on that estate having, you know, one heater in the house. I can remember that we'd have to put the towels against the window frames because there were metal frames and the condensation meant in the morning there would be big puddles in your room because of that. And, you know, going to bed with uh, sleeping bags and blankets because there was just that's the way it was. That's how we grew up. So that sense of this is that was just enormous what you did. And being really excited as a kid, we, we suddenly had one, one year, or I remember one day I came home from school and my dad had bought and got fitted an electric shower, dolphin electric showers. Goodness me. I remember my sister's the never got, Yeah, my sister's never got out of the shower since. She was so taken with that. That's it, half an hour every day in the shower for her. Um, Annie, yes, I'm talking to you. And yes, I still remember when I was trying to get ready for school and you were hogging the bathroom and I couldn't get in to brush my teeth. Anyway. You don't hold the clutch though. <laughs> no, 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 no. Siblings never hold grudges, do they? That's fine. So there's something there about how I was brought up. And, you know, my parents were part of big families as well when they were growing up. So that ethos, I think, has always been instilled in me genetically, which is you look out for each other. You don't take things for granted. You have to strive and work hard if you want to enjoy comforts. And actually, sometimes you can make all the right choices you can invest in all the right things and you still lose. It's interesting. Yeah. But it's interesting though that because um, for some people, that experience might have driven them purely towards the gathering of profit and um, you know, kind of created what you might call a scarcity mindset where it would have been um, you know, going out, you talked about having comforts and going out and achieving, you know, selling shoes, basically selling shoes, selling shoes as well as you can to basically ensure that you have the comforts and you're able to then give the comforts to your family. None of this is a, an ignoble thing to do, it's perfectly um, admirable to do, but it could have been that that would have been the limits of, of where you'd been. I'll give you a, a story from my, uh, my own childhood. So the very first um, uh, red nose uh, year, comic relief, oh, yeah. the very first one, 
all those classic and um, very, very, you know, almost cliche, which is terrible now, but almost cliched images of people starving in Ethiopia, mm. children walking through the streets on their own and all that kind of stuff. And I was sat there. So this was maybe 86, I think. Yeah. Um, so I was about six years old and um, I'm sat there with my mum and um, I'm just, you know, tears just down these children and it still kind of almost triggers me now you know these people I'm there in this big house this big three-bedroom house on a big hill you know with all the comforts that you're talking about and there are these people out there existing in this this nightmare and I'm streaming with tears and my mum is looking at me kind of going oh you know what, what do I do with this <laughs> and then my sister looks at me, looks at my mum and says to my mum, why are you crying? They're not your children. And it's one of those moments that for me is that clear divide where it's logical, right? It's rational. It does make sense. But at the same time, clearly something in me was reaching out over that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles to those people and, you know, it almost chokes me up now just thinking about it. I can relive that moment and just think that is when I think if I'm really honest, I knew that I could. It wasn't enough for me to do something in my immediate environment. I had to do something that was bigger, whether that's big. I mean, you know, I can't necessarily help people in the Ukraine directly right now, but bigger doesn't have to mean a thousand miles away. It can mean just down the road. It can mean, um, you know, around the corner to people who actually need some help. But I know now that that is definitely one of those moments where it clearly shows I need something bigger. I need something larger than myself. Yeah. And you're in that moment where you're having that experience that could have led you. You could have turned into, you know, again, not to point fingers, but you could have turned into the logical, rational decision like my sister of saying, actually, this is I'm going to avoid this experience by playing the rules of the game and making sure that, you know, I, I don't get into this situation again. But it wasn't. What in you, we talked about your love for creativity and stuff like that, but if you look a bit deeper, what in you is it, do you think, that, that put you through that experience and came out with that need to do something good rather than that need to avoid something bad? So, so this is, comes back to that, boils down to the nature versus nurture debate, doesn't it? And, you know, again, in terms of your relationship with your sister, Ben, You've gone, and, you know, you're still related, you still love each other, just like I do with my sister. Love expresses in different ways sometimes, which can involve, you know, when you're younger, bruises and punches, but we still, you know, respect that relationship. But there's something about nature versus nurture in this. And I think part of my thinking or the way that my brain's wired or wired itself has been that sense of I am not an island. If I simply provide for my family, that's not enough. Because I am part of my family, a part of a bigger ecosystem of other people. We rely on, you know, I rely on, when the, my kids were younger, I relied on the teachers in their school feeling motivated to get out of bed in the morning and go and face that class again so that my kids could have some opportunity for education and learning. I, you know, how do I support that my kids get that when I have no direct immediate relationship with their teacher? but their teacher is part of a community, a large community that I'm also part of. So what can I do to support that community, which in turn will trickle through and I did ripples in the pond. You know, we're all related to each other. It's the game of seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. 
everyone's related to Kevin Bacon through uh, no more than seven kind of knock-on contacts. Or the six handshakes rule. Yeah, you're never more than six yeah. handshakes away from anybody, yeah. Yeah, although nowadays, it, after the pandemic, it's six <laughs> handshakes with a bottle of antibacterial lotion after each one. Elbow and, pumps, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, but there's something about that. And I think that, you know, and we can, we can um, you know, examine that or dress it up in different ways. So I've looked at it and said, I rely on farmers not giving up to make sure that there's food in the shops when I need to buy it. I rely on uh, street cleaners to make sure that drains are, there's half a chance the drains will be clear and won't back up and flood the next time it rains. I rely on the people in the council depot going out on the garbage trucks every week to take my rubbish away. It's interesting you map this out. Who are the most important people in, in a city? Italy, a couple of years ago, all the bin collectors went on strike. It's the most powerful strike action ever because there's nothing like seeing your rubbish pile up on the streets within a couple of days to, to, to cement action. Or there's, you know, we look at it through another lens and say, you know, if we subscribe to a faith, because some people are motivated by faith or whatever, whichever flavor or smell to do this with. And there's all of them, generally speaking, have a similar commandment, which is love your neighbor. You know, my question to that is, well, who's your neighbor? You know, it's every other person on the planet. How do you love them? You show support and care for them. How do you do that in terms of when you were a child, Ben? you felt sympathy, you felt empathy for them. You felt motivated to say, this is a fellow human being. This is someone who, you know, I could be in that position one day and I would want someone to give up. So hang on a minute, I get my beeper again. I'd want someone to give up about me if I am. Because, you know, we all rely on the kindness and the generosity of strangers at different points in our lives. And that only works because we in turn are able to be kind and generous when we can. So there's something about how we manifest that. Um, I often kind of joke as well about this idea of the way that my brain's wired. And, and I think I did discover a few years ago that that's not a glib comment. I actually do have something physically odd with my brain. I have a, a void in it. There's a gland that's supposed to be there, which is pretty negligible. None of the consultants it got picked up by accident. None of the consultants have figured out how, how are you able to get up in the morning and talk and do stuff without this thing to help regulate you? And I don't know. My brain's obviously adapted. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's the answer. It's just a fluke of biology that says I have this attitude that I do, but I'm quite glad that I do. And I'm not sure I'd want to go back because, again, that point of in my twilight years, when I look back, if people call me to account, if people you know challenge me publicly or privately wherever it is and says how dare you act like that? so what well, act like what i'm not ashamed of anything that i do in my work um otherwise i wouldn't do it you know, i don't want i've got enough guilt and regret from things i've done or not done in my past in other things which again is another podcast series dear listener um but yeah that maybe that's where that comes from it's an interesting point because you talked about uh, i think we talked about evolutionary kind of processes and genetics and all that kind of stuff earlier but I don't know whether you've heard of a guy called um, Jacob Bronowski like no. one of one of my absolute heroes of all time and he he was just an incredible guy he presented the series The Ascent of Man back in the okay. uh, 70s I think it was and um, ultimately you know a lot of what I get from from that series is his position that um you know, evolution isn't just an easy kind of thing to tick off a list. People always, they talk about evolution like survival of the fittest and all this kind of stuff. And I think 
largely, without going again on too much of a tangent, I think largely there's a misconception that evolution is like, um, you know, almost a sorting hat, <laughs> you know, for thing. oh, this one, that one, the other, and all that kind of stuff. But actually all it is is just attrition of time, right? And the, the things that survive that attrition of time are the things that survive. There's no arbitrary objective choice going on. It's just literally survival of the fittest in that way, which is is the ones that get to the top of the mountain, the ones that can breathe the air, the ones that can, you know, they're the ones that flourish. And his program for me puts forward this idea that that kind of biological evolution stopped to a degree many years ago, many, many years ago. And in fact, it stopped at the point where, and this is where the ascent of man, I think, you know, his title comes into it, where we stopped biological evolution and we began social evolution. Yep. And, and so what you're kind of talking about in, in like what you say is this interconnectedness of everybody, this need for, you know, if, if the farmer wasn't out there getting out of bed and growing stuff, we'd have to do it. If yep. the bus driver didn't get out of bed and drive the bus, we'd have to do it. If the bin men didn't do it, we'd have to do it. If the sewer cleaners didn't do it, we wouldn't have sewers. And for me, it's always fed into this kind of pet theory I like to bore people with, um, which is this idea that there's two there's always, you know, that idea of two types of people, stuff like that. But there's two uh, motivations that you can kind of lean into. And I call them uh, builder and hunter. You're either a builder, you either love to build, creative maybe, or you, but ultimately when you're a builder, you have to work with concepts. You have to work with long-term gain. You have to work with ideas in your head. You have to work with things that are sometimes physical and in front of you, but are also often in your brain and they only exist when you actually create them. And then there's the other leaning which is the hunter the people who like to play something they can understand to do something they can understand something relatable reliable routine repeatable you go out the wildebeest are in the place where they should be because of the migration patterns that you've learned you you go out and you you know you do the fields in your um place in the you know fringe of the sahara desert get the same amount of rain every year and so i mean this is where climate change really comes into it because there's places in Africa that have been using the same farming routines for a thousand years that only just recently have had to change because the weather patterns have changed and they're, you know, they're not getting the rains at the same time. But ultimately, you have these leanings. You have this leaning of working within a repeatable system and doing something kind of the same every day to get a physical manifestation of, of reward or to get something back, you come back with the kill, you come back with the harvest, you come back with whatever, the money, the, the, the bacon on the table. And then the other one, which is, um, you know, more kind of a, we're working towards, we're hoping to get. But I think what, what really is important to me is that the builder starves without the hunter. And if, and you can't have the one without the other. And that is that kind of social evolution that, you you the social the society sorry evolves to a point where there is indep independency like the heart can't pump without the um without the brain or without the lungs you know it doesn't work you've got that interdependency the the hunter needs to provide food for the builder the builder then provides hopefully you know shelter for the hunter it's kind of mutual beneficial thing but maybe where i'm trying to get to is this idea that when the hunters start to feel that the builders aren't pulling their weight and that they want more hunters and that hunting is the only way to be. You get stuck into this rhythm, into this pattern where everybody feels that they have to do the same thing, which is where I think a lot of what happens now with schooling, with qualifications, that you have to get a job, you have to get this kind of job, you have to get this kind of earnings. And that 
therefore you then if you have this builder mindset that you want to help you want to do something bigger than you you want to push over you don't have a way to relate to people because you can't talk about um, profit you can't talk about you know wanting to get this money wanting to get that award because what you're trying to do is is achieve something that goes beyond those kind of things that like you say that interconnectedness of human beings reach out and help people it doesn't have a necessary financial reward to it but then immediately now you've got the people that are chasing the profit trying to now find a purpose for it <laughs> are they trying to find a purpose for it to make more profit or to make them feel better I, I i don't know i mean i've kind of gone you know this is where my head's at at the moment but i guess what i'm trying to get to the bottom of with you is you work so much across these different worlds you've worked with local government uh, with central government you've worked with uh, large organizations and you're working with, um, you know, small uh, nonprofits or larger nonprofits, but ultimately it seems that the thing that draws you back is the is the nonprofit work, is the charity work. Would that be would that be right? Um, it seems to be yes, because that's where I think people are the most open. And that, that you know, send that sense of we're not in terms of builders and, and hunters. There's no sense of having to put on. Uh, pr- I'm going to stumble off my words here, put on a show. That sense, you know, because if you're in big businesses, you're in government, there's a jargon, there's behaviours that you kind of have to, to mimic and ape in how you work because that's the culture, that's the norms. And if you don't do that kind of thing, it's really hard. If, you're not, if you don't wear the right school tie, and I made a decision decades ago, I would never wear a tie apart from weddings and funerals because I actually don't like the idea of putting a physical noose around my neck that anyone else can grab and kill me with. Um, and I have been in, worked in places where that has been a very real risk, as it turns out. So good, good call on my part with, with hindsight and foresight. So there's, but then there's, I think there's also something about, again, the influence that our families have on us within this. So one of the things that my parents tried to instill in me when I was younger and growing up was if, if people enjoy what you do, if people ask you nicely, try and keep doing more of it. You know, it's obviously something's working. and That's making more good, more happiness in the world, whether it's for profit or for social good. Happiness is important. And it seems that a lot of work with my charities, my charities, sorry, a lot of my work with different charities leaves people feeling happy in a way that they hadn't expected to because of my approach, whatever it is I do. And that means they talk about it. That means they remember it and they want to do more of it. So because of, that that drilling in that habit I got in, into as a kid, uh, Ben. It's a you know I'll always try and do more of that, amplify the good, minimize the bad, and good we can actually I think interpret quite broadly. You know, on the basis that you know was it I think Go- was it Google's mission statement used to be do no harm or something or don't be evil. Evil's a relative concept. You know, it's very hard to be absolutely good or absolutely bad. I went through a divorce a few years ago. And I'm sure if, you know, you ask different people who were connected with my ex-wife and I at the time, either she or I would have been more evil in our behaviours than the other because of that perspective we held and that experience. Ultimately, we are, it's only our own consciences that we have to sleep at night. Uh, it's to sleep with at night. So, you know, we kind of have to figure out where's our moral compass on this and say, you know, if I'm challenged on that, how well, how confident I'm that I can stand by this and how open am I 
to moving on it. So one of my professional mantras has always been prove me wrong. So the, all, everything I've ever done through my working life has always been as far as possible, try and base it on evidence and research. And that kind of talks back to that point about Mr. Lang, my history teacher, evidence and research of history, the economics of social problems, use data modeling and research to understand people's behaviors and why apparently irrational things happen. And I've carried that through. And what that means is in terms of charities, social enterprise land and others, I look at certain policy edicts, certain mantras, certain encouragements that come out from some sector bodies. And I go, hang on a minute, evidence and research kind of doesn't really sit with that. Something's not, what, what am I missing? So I'll always come in it open and say, what am I missing? Here's my workings out. Show me yours. And if I've misunderstood, I'll very happily hold my hands up and publicly admit that. And on my blog, if people are really bored one night and really having trouble sleeping, they can look up the blog and they can scroll through it. And there are a couple of posts on there where I say, I got it wrong. There is a point to this thing after all. It's marginal. It's very niche, but it's there. And I'm now not completely against this particular idea because someone stood up and challenged me and I was open to hearing that. So there's yeah something about how we, we, we you know, that social evolution, we have to be open to change because the world is always changing around us. And that's very much a, a business mindset as well, isn't it? To have that idea of, um, you know, yeah, I've just indulged myself with uh, kind of you know, availing myself of this, this theory. I've been kind of nurturing this idea it's all very well having this um, this exciting thought and chat and all that kind of stuff, but but ultimately there is a practicality that needs to be embraced. There is a business process that needs to be embraced in order to achieve anything. And um, you know, one of the things I, I want to try and help smaller charities do is embrace that process of um, of raising their awareness among people, or, or raising people's awareness of the work that they do, and of getting that profile out there because it can sometimes feel i find you know talking to small charities it is like you said at the beginning of going over to the dark side marketing ooh, you know making money ooh, you know and yet you talk to a, a lot of people in this world and they will say the trouble is there is a problem with making money and that a lot of people feel it's terrible but at the same time the more money you make the more change you make and that there's a relationship there that as long as the money is made in a way like you said just then that you can stand by and say, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with this. I can stand by this. And then it's applied and used in a way that you can also do the same. But thinking about this business process that, um, you know, they're not businesses, they're not selling shoes, but um, small charities still need help to, um, to bridge that gap of awareness, to get people aware of, of what they do and, the, and their impact. If we were going to start a new charity from scratch tomorrow, for whatever cause we decided it would be for. Um, and someone else, good for them, was taking care of the governance and the legality, the paperwork, all that kind of stuff. And all we had to think about was getting awareness, making people aware that we exist, that we do something and that we need support. How would you go about advising us, working with me and you, to get to that first 1,000 donations, whatever those donations might look like. Okay. Um, short of saying, here's a bag of money, go and buy an Ogilvy yeah. Consulting. So we've obviously not got any money. We, we can't because, do any marketing. Although, yeah, no, it says, but, yeah, um, Ogilvy have this, um, this kind of unicorn behavioural 
uh, psychology th something. There's, there's an email. Yes, with, with, with Rory Sutherland at the head of it. Yeah, 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 really. Yeah, so some, yeah, every so often they kind of, you know, put out some freebie bits and really interesting stuff. Uh, I think, yeah, I wouldn't come in with a list of here's your checklist of stuff. We'll, we'll get to my adaptive checklist in a moment, Ben. But my question would be, why are you wanting to reach a thousand people? What's the point? And some of the work I do on impact reporting and social value and social impact and ESG, as it's now called, is always that first question of what's the point? Why are you you're trying to do this? Why? What will having a thousand people help you do? If it's to have a thousand more voices to amplify, okay, great. If it's a thousand people to validate, get that validation, great. If it's a thousand people showing support, so you can go and get that big lot of money from the lottery or the council give you planning permission. Great. So there's something about that thing that we need to be clear on because what we need the thousand people for or them to do once they've heard about us really informs how we get them. So the idea of saying, let's try and do something viral on Facebook or social media will only be relevant if those are the sorts of people in those places who are the, that match that need. If we're saying we need people who are um, you know, high net worth individuals to introduce us to their contacts in the golf club. Social media is not going to be the place. Chambers of commerce will be the place that we start doing the rounds on. If, however, it's something that says, you know, we want to get some kind of press coverage for what we're doing and the media won't talk to us. If we get a thousand voices, maybe the BBC will start paying attention or whoever it is. Uh, then we need something quite visual. We need to mobilize youth. We hit TikTok. And a couple of years' time, it'd be whatever the next thing is. And that's where we hit it on. Ultimately, though, what I think is we, so whatever that, that, that stuff aside, there's a couple of guiding rules I think kind of stick. And one is getting that 1,000 donations, likes, whatever it is, we need that to be meaningful. As a charity, if we're creating change and impact, it's through, we, that only happens through relationships. And, you know, a, a like on social media, a share, doesn't create relationship or lasting impact. So we have to find a way to get those 1,000 people feeling they're engaged. They've put some skin in the game with us. So very often, you know, we, we see this a lot now, or I'm seeing it a lot, the idea of, well, set up a standing donation. You know, buyers are, you know, sit with freelancers, buyers are on, on Ko-Fi, buyers a coffee a month. You know, if you like it, here's the tip jar link, three pounds, that's a coffee. I think in terms of how the world and stuff, three pounds for some people is now still perceived too much. Bar of chocolate, a pound. That's probably an easier ask. I can think about that. I've got a pound in my pocket. I'm not going to miss it. But it's still something that I could get. I'm giving up a bar of chocolate to support your cause. So I've invested something in that. So I'm more likely then to want to follow it through, to talk to other people. So I become an ambassador. Kickstarter, you know, crowdfunding programs work in the way they do because if I back one, I share the link on my social media because I want to see it succeed. I don't want my pound to be wasted in terms of putting it that way. So we we structure it that way. And then there has to be a call to action that gets the interest, which is really clear and, and easy. You know, um, just something of something off the top of my head. Uh, for example, you talked at the start, made a reference to the conflict in Ukraine at the moment. Interesting, lots of people that I'm hearing saying, you know, so, so we stand with Ukraine. You know, people are getting tattoos, they're repainting their house with Ukrainian colours and all the rest. I've no problem with that. Absolutely fine and brilliant. What I do have a problem with is when I hear and see those safe, same people going to the petrol station and moaning about the price of petrol going up. So it's going up because we're standing with Ukraine. 
there's this connection. We saw it during the pandemic a couple of years ago, the Clap for, Clap for Heroes initiative. Every Thursday night, everyone get out at eight o'clock, on your doorsteps, rattle your pans, clap your things, show your support for the NHS heroes. Brilliant. And those same people that would then go to the supermarket the next day and be really upset about having to wear a face mask. This, you can't disconnect. It's the interconnectivity again you were talking yeah. about. I mean, for me, it was like, I, I not that, again, it's difficult. You know, it's very, I haven't talked about Ukraine really much and I don't talk about it on LinkedIn because I don't feel like I can add something to the discussion. Yeah. And I feel like that disqualifies me from, you know, I will mention it, of course, and I will be part of discussions because like you say, part of what those people are doing is raising awareness, making sure everybody knows if something's happening. That's great, raising awareness. But then to think that you have a position where you can then wade in and, you know, I've got um, sort of theatre of war experience. Or, you know, I don't have any of that. But what I can do is, is have those discussions in a positive way and try and understand things. And, you know, like you say, that interconnectivity and the fact that for me during that time, it, it's a similar kind of difficult thing to say. I didn't do the Thursday thing. I didn't mm. do the clapping thing. Not because I thought, oh, I don't actually like the NHS. I've had three kids. I've th seen literally the hard work that they do, the, the all night shifts that they do, the, you know, the blood, sweat and tears that goes into it. And, and the fact that they keep coming back, these people in the NHS, you know, that work so hard and that I wanted to support them in another way. You know, clapping didn't seem to me to mean anything. But at the same time, it was, it's frustrating that it then immediately disappeared, you know, and it's kind of gone. And it was like, it was a momentary thing. It was almost like a mass hysteria. And, and it also became politically hijacked as exactly. well. Exactly, exactly. So, so my idea, that, again, this coming back to sort of the interconnectivity, a thousand people, a thousand donations, we've kind of hit upon this idea, it's a pound. Everyone kind of goes, well, you know, would you like a bar of chocolate? Yes, please. Well, instead of a bar of chocolate, we'll give the bar of chocolate to this thing over there instead. So if we've got, if this, if our charity has got a thousand pounds, a thousand pounds, what does that do? What do we do with a thousand pounds? That makes the ask more powerful. Once we have a thousand pounds, we can put up a billboard. So it seems Once like a thousand yeah, pounds, we can make this thing happen. And you're kind of talking about success and like um, you start as the organization defining what success looks like in terms of, yeah, we get a thousand people, but what does that success actually lead to? Yeah. Um, I did some work uh, a while ago for Derby Book Festival. And one of the things that I did first was look through the results that they had from previous years when they had, I won't name them, but they had a social agency that was helping them to get traffic. And a lot of it was, we got a hundred thousand shares, we got this, that, and the other. And it was like, yeah, but what did you get out there? Not a single ticket sold, or at least there was never any indication that yeah. that sold tickets. And I once got, um, I forget who it was. I'm going to say Sarah Millican, but I don't think it was her, but somebody in her kind of, you know, uh, level of, of, of uh, show business was coming along to an event and we got them to, to tweet about the event that they were coming along to for the Derby Book Festival. Huge amounts of traffic, huge amounts of re retweets, or not a single ticket sold. Mm. And you've got to look at that, like you say, that idea of defining success before you start to try and achieve it. But then the secondary process that you're kind of saying now is it's not enough just to define success for yourself. You've then got to help other people to see the success that they can achieve to, that they can contribute yeah. to. What's that's what's going to get, yeah, what's in for them. Again, that idea of social evolution, there has to be reciprocity, reciprocity, however we pronounce it, give to get, get to give. However philanthropic it is, 
you know, whether it gives us a warm and fuzzy, whether it helps make sure that the bins aren't overflowing, we're getting something back. Let's just be honest about that. And if we're trying to get a thousand people to give us something, what's in it for them? Um, and, and that then kind of invests that relationship more. So as a new charity, we've now got a thousand people. We've had a thousand pounds to do something big showy event, which again, magnifies and amplifies our message and awareness and profile. And we've then got a thousand people who are ready and waiting for us to say to them or ask them, here's what we want to do next. And it's that idea of that flywheel moment. I think so many charities, that marketing, that, that promotion, that branding work, it's seen as a one-off. Oh, well, we rebranded ourselves. What did you do? We changed our logo. Uh, no, that's not rebranding. That's just simply. That's yeah, just design. Yeah. 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 That's an example. And that's very limited design as well. Because, um, you know, if any designers listening, I am aware that what you do goes way beyond just picking out the right colored felt tips and, and crayons to, to make images look pretty. So there's the stuff in that, absolutely. I think we, you know, we missed that trick of saying it's about relationship. You know, we have relationships with supporters and it's through them that we amplify that impact. You know, this is how change happens. This is how the world moves to the state that we would love to see. We don't think about doing stuff transactionally. We think about doing stuff relationally. But the difficulty is over the last generation, because we've had a political policy, we've had legislation, we've had, uh, and that's informed school curriculums, that's informed the way that businesses have to act and, and be compliant. It's become more transactional and less relational. And as a result, you know, with the people like us are kicking back going, no, look, it can be different. And we're seeing that, you know, this idea of the great resignation last autumn and sort of the autumn winter 2021, people saying, I don't want just to turn up for a paycheck. There has to be more to this. There has to be something that gives me a sense of fulfillment and for relationships are that guaranteed route of getting that fulfillment. I think the difficulty there as well, you know, transactions by their very necessity. Um, I think I might've talked about this in the podcast previously. They leave us unchanged. This is something I got from a, a book called um, The Gift by Lewis Hyde. Absolutely fantastic book about generosity and transactions and relationship building and that kind of stuff. And yeah, he's, you know, basically the, the design of a transaction is that we are not changed on the other, other side of it. We have something different, but we ourselves are not changed. I give you something in exchange directly for something else, and then we are both equal and square. And we can walk away because it was it's it's designed to enable us to leave ties behind literally transactional relationships are not relationships because they are designed not to equip and drive relationship behavior and so that's why sometimes i get a bit down on the idea of the you know the pound donation or the money donation because ultimately that's a, just a transactional donation which again you know it's not building a relationship but it's interesting you talk about helping people to see success that you can get with their contribution, helping people to actually mm. contribute towards something. Because I think, like you said, that, that design of our generation, of our society, to bring things to transaction means our, our field of vision is so short-sighted. So yeah. in even to build relationships at the beginning, we have to be able to see directly to the thing that we're going to get back for us. And there's a and it runs through this book that i just mentioned the gift there's an idea that actually the true gift true generosity is about giving something to a blind spot giving something that you can't see where it goes 
you you give a gift and you you are changed on the other end of it because you have less because there is an imbalance in the direction of the mm -hmm. gift and because you don't see where that gift goes or how it's applied or used but that in itself that act is the act of generosity the material is just the fun the, the the channel if you like or the, the kind of vehicle that takes you to that process of giving into something that you cannot see and then ultimately that's that builds a community because it's in your self-interest to maintain a relationship with that void if you like that you've put your gift into because at some point the the goal is you know the sort of the relationship basis that that imbalance that you feel will affect that community so much that it will flow back towards you and people will give to you and there will be a kind of a you know a relationship um conversion if you like of, of exchange i've given maybe a year later i get back it's why i don't like the bni uh, thing givers gain because actually givers don't gain givers give yeah and anybody who gains who's looking for gain is not looking to give is looking for yeah for that mm -hmm. transaction so yeah that's great and i think there's another point just to kind of kind of uh, wrap this off in terms of this idea of you know how would we get that that first thousand there's something also really important which is to create a sense of urgency you know if if there's no deadline if it's only two minutes for me to click the link and set up the PayPal or tap my phone on the screen, I'll do it later. We know this. If we think back, you know, over our day-to-day -day lives, look, you know, wherever you are listening to this now, this is me. I'm talking to you, listener, nattering in your ear or through your speakers, wherever I'm, I'm engaging with you. Just look around you and spot all of those two-minute jobs you've got left stacked up. And they are there because you know they're only going to take you two minutes. And there's no crashing urgency if you don't do them right now. We put it off. So if there's a deadline, if there's an urgency, which is we need this thousand, we need to hit a thousand by the next five days. We need to hit a thousand by this date, or what's the consequence? You know, the dog gets it, or whatever it is. Then that also amplifies that message and that reach and builds an interest, makes people want to invest in that relationship more. Um, and I think that, yeah, this, and, and, you know, my kind of closing challenge to anyone who's listening to this podcast, because podcasts are, uh, you know, thousands out there at the moment, you know, what's the difference? You know, you listen to them sort of like TEDx talks, like TED talks, okay? We all know TED talks, we've all listened to some. Can you remember what you, what was in them? Ultimately, you think back, well, there's something about this, something about that. What difference did it make to you when you actually think back and how it's changed your life? So I always say, whenever I'm doing a session, Ben, and I put the same challenge now, so, dear listener, whoever you are, wherever you are in your life, whenever you're listening to this, what one thing are you now going to do to get off your and actually do something different? Don't just and but make the most of having invested this time in this podcast so you've not wasted an hour or however long it's been in the edit and do something practical. You will feel better for it and the world will be a better place for it as well. Absolutely. I, you know, I literally, I, I like to uh, waffle sometimes and uh, here I am doing it now, but I, I don't think there's anywhere to go from there, which is exactly right. And maybe I should have given a warning at the beginning that you were going to use <laughs> an alert to, to cover um, supposed uh, swear words. But yeah, I mean, that, that's literally what we're talking about, isn't it? Is, is take a practical step towards the thing that you're trying to achieve 
because just thinking about it isn't, isn't, isn't enough. And here are some practical steps. Vision success, help other people to vision success and paint the idea that success is, is, not, a, um, an, uh, is not outside of time, that it has a deadline, that it has a time limit. Whereas for me, I'd always say to people, if the one thing you take away from listening to this time is, oh, Eddie Reader sounds like an interesting folk singer, I'd go and look them up on Spotify. That to <laughs> me is equally fine and valid too. Or MacGyver. Yeah, great call. Yes, MacGyver. <laughs> Look me up and I will tell you MacGyver's real name. Lovely stuff. Great. Adrian, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated it. I've also appreciated you letting me talk as well. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic and uh, I look forward to seeing more of your stuff. I've just actually looked up your um, your lecturer. You mentioned Sean Lang, his name yes. is on, on Twitter. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Looks really good. So thank you very much for everything and uh, all the best. Thanks. Until next time. 